every year, uh, Travel and Leisure, the magazine Travel and Leisure, among others, they hold a contest where their readers vote on the rudest city in America. Since the inception of that contest, our city of angels has won three times. Um, occasionally, we polish our halos a little bit, but perpetually we find ourselves in the top five. Usually New York, Miami, uh, Washington, D.C., they also are, are there with us. I don't know what your experience of L.A. is. Uh, I don't know whether you think L.A. is a rude city. Not always. It's not always our experience. Just yesterday, Brianne and I were down uh, downtown on a Groupon uh, food tour, and we met some other pretty nice L.A. residents. We had some good conversation with them. You know, with all the sunshine and the positive vibes out here, you would, you would think we would not be a very rude society. We don't have also the hustle and bustle of a really urban area like New York. But then rudeness takes on many forms, doesn't it? Being hostile with people, being curt is obviously rude, but then not gauging in people, engaging people, that is also rude. I think it's rude not to engage people. We understand why we don't always engage others. Um, we live in a city that's very diverse, it's multicultural. That means that it's um, a challenge to engage one another. There are language barriers, cultural barriers, and other barriers as well that maybe matter more. Socioeconomic barriers, political barriers, even religious barriers. They keep us from communicating with one another and loving one another. I think that one of the rudest places that I've ever experienced in L.A. is Costco. Uh, maybe I should be going to Trader Joe's, but I do have a, a family of seven to feed, so I feel that I must pass through Costco on a regular basis. Uh, at Costco, all the people there, they have their differences, right? They're, they're varied, but they're all crammed together in one place, and everyone is really just trying to fill their carts and get out. They don't interact with one another. Uh, they will even avoid making eye contact with one another. I, I know that I have been in Costco and said, pardon me, when my cart is behind someone or next to someone, I'm trying to make my way through, and I know that people hear me, and they don't even flinch, and they don't even acknowledge me. Maybe you've had the same experience. It's not, um, it doesn't come natural to us to greet strangers. You could head to LAX right now, get on a plane, fly halfway ac across the country and not say anything to the person seated next to you and that wouldn't be considered weird. We are obviously connected, but we avoid people. We email when we, could, when we should probably pick up the phone and have a conversation. We hate confrontation so much that we text or we screen our phone calls. We follow the pattern of this world rather than the example of our Lord. But Jesus shows us a different way. Jesus, I believe, goes out of his way to speak with someone with whom he has nothing in common. And he does it in a way that demonstrates his love for God and his love for people, even strangers. Jesus seeks strangers. Jesus seeks Samaritans. And Jesus seeks Samaritan sinners. 
You know, upon first reading, we might conclude that Jesus did not really go out of his way to engage this woman, especially since the passage opened by saying that Jesus had to go through Samaria. John said that Jesus uh, made a decision to leave Galilee or leave Judea for Galilee because his popularity was growing. Um, his time had not yet come, and he would not entrust himself to any man because he knew what was in the hearts of men. He knew that um, the crowds misunderstood his mission. He knew that the, the Pharisees were trouble. And so verse 4 says that he left, and in leaving Judea for Galilee, he had to pass through Samaria. Now that's pretty much true because Judea is a province in the south, Galilee's in the north, Samaria's in between, so you pretty much have to pass through it to get from one place to the other. Yet even though John sets this up as circumstantial, I think what he's really suggesting is that this is a divine appointment and that Jesus pursues this woman providentially. See, Jesus has come to do his father's will. And his will is that his father would have him engage this woman. He had to pass through Samaria to engage this woman, to seek her out. And we know that this is the way of Jesus. Jesus says that it's not the healthy that need a doctor. Jesus has come to seek and save the lost. You know, there, there were some very religious people who wanted to avoid Samaritans at all costs so they would not go through Samaria if they needed to, to travel from south to north as Jesus did. They would actually cross over the Jordan and travel northbound on the east side of the river in order to avoid these people. What's so wrong with Samaritans that people would go out of their way to avoid them? Who are these Samaritans? Well, the first thing that should probably be established is that they were essentially mixed Jews. Uh, they are ethnically and religiously speaking um, a mixture of Jewish and pagan peoples. If you know your Old Testament history, maybe from Sunday school, uh, you may remember that when Solomon died, uh, ten of the tribes of Jacob, they seceded from Solomon's rightful heir, and, and a northern kingdom was established. And its king quickly set up holy places where people could pilgrimage in order to worship God and sacrifice so that they wouldn't have to travel to Jerusalem. And this rift and division in the kingdom lasted throughout the history of both nations. But you know, in the northern kingdom's history, in about a 250-year span, Israel did not have one righteous king, not one good king among, among the lot of them. So they became an apostate nation. Of course, God strove with them. He sent them prophets after prophets to warn the people and call them to repentance, but the people didn't change. And so eventually God sent them away into captivity. But when Assyria took these people into exile, they only took the best. They only took the nobility back with them. They left behind the so-called peasants with whom they intermarried. The Assyrians who settled in Israel intermarried with the Jews who were left behind, and these people became known as the Samaritans. And the Jews that were taken into captivity to, is to Assyria, they never came home again. If you've ever heard the term the, the lost tribes of Israel or the lost ten tribes of Israel, that's where this comes from. They were never to be seen again. They were assimilated into other nations because of their apostasy. Now, we may say, look, that's pretty petty. That's pretty petty for pure Jews, if you will, to not associate with their half-brothers, both religiously and ethnically speaking. 
Wouldn't that be kind of akin to a Spaniard not wanting to associate with a Mexican because, of course, the Mexican is half Spanish by descent and half Native American or Indian? And yeah, I think there's some truth to that. I think that there were some racial boundaries that people didn't want to cross. I think there was some prejudice in the hearts of these people. There was some disdain for Samaritans based solely on their impure ethnicity. But there was more. See, the, the Samaritans continued to hold their rival places of worship. And in doing so, they became much like a cult. Next week, when Chuck continues in this passage, we'll read about how these rival places of worship were still a contention between the two uh, peoples. The Samaritan woman is going to argue with Jesus over the proper place where God's people should pilgrimage in order to worship him. So this remained a sticking point with the Jews. Even when the southern kingdom also went out into captivity, uh, they did return, unlike their, their counterparts. They returned and they rebuilt their holy city, Jerusalem. They built the walls around it, and they built the temple within it. And the Bible ce celebrates this accomplishment as something good and right. You see, the Jews, they were right, and the Samaritans were wrong about where to worship God and how to worship God. The Samaritans did not practice true religion. They were a cult. You ever encountered a cult? How do you respond when you do encounter people in a cult? Did Jesus avoid them because of this? Did he view passing through Samaria as a necessary evil? Was he concerned about contamination, maybe? Was he just trying to avoid them altogether? I don't even want to make eye contact. No, of course not. Instead, he engages this Samaritan woman. He engages her intentionally. I would even say lovingly. Jesus is the one who took the initiative in speaking to her. This is really a remarkable break with his culture and his tradition. This is actually the last person you'd expect an upstanding Jew to associate with for a number of reasons. The woman herself shows this by being shocked that he's seeking her out and speaking to, it, to her. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? This doesn't make sense to her. See, not only did Jews not speak with Samaritans, but men of that day did not engage strange women in conversation. It's just not how you operated back in that culture. So right there, there are two reasons why we should be surprised that Jesus speaks to her and seeks her out. She's a Samaritan, and she's a woman. Actually, there's a third reason. John says that Jesus stopped by this well at the sixth hour, which I believe to be about noon. Now, that may not signify much to us, but in that climate, you didn't go and fetch water in the middle of the day. just wasn't sensible. It's really hot at that time of day. For, for that reason, most of the women would go in the morning or the evening to fetch water. In fact, congregating at the well in the morning and the evening would, yeah, it would become a sort of social gathering. Think of it as uh, fellowship around the water cooler. But women did not go to the well in the middle of the day unless they were rejected, unless they were an outcast, unless they were ostracized by their own people. So not only is this woman ostracized by the Jews, she's ostracized by her own people as well. This woman is a Samaritan sinner. Now I realize that that may be a 
sound like a strong statement that assumes a lot from one phrase there, namely that she came to the well alone or she came at the, uh, the noon hour. But at the risk of stealing a little bit of Chuck's thunder next week, if we had just read on a couple more verses, I think we would discover that this woman is very dysfunctional. She's been married five times, and now she's living with a, a sixth man. That certainly was not the norm in that day. This? This is the woman that Jesus is seeking? You know, I think that a good Jew who would be reading John's account of Jesus engaging a woman at a well would probably recall another story of an encounter at a well from the Old Testament, from Genesis 24. In that account, Abraham sends his servant to his homeland to find a suitable wife for his son Isaac. You see, Abraham is um, he's worried that if he doesn't do this, Isaac will have to marry a Canaanite woman. From, uh, from among the people surrounding them, and, and thus he'll become defiled. He'll be led astray. He'll be led into false religion, into a cult. And so Abraham's servant heads back to Mesopotamia, and when he gets to uh, this well, it's an unnamed well near Abraham's hometown, he kneels down to pray this prayer. He says, Lord, you see the women are not now coming out to, uh, <coughs> to draw water. Lord, let the woman to whom I say, please let down your jar that I may have a drink. Lord, let her reply, drink. And I'll water your camels too. And let her be the one for your servant Isaac. And the story goes on to recount that a woman who was very attractive in appearance, uh, a maiden whom no man had ever known, a virgin. She came out to the well to fill up her jar, and Abraham's servant engaged her in conversation, saying, please let down your water so that your jar so that I may have a drink. I'm, I'm thirsty. And she said the very thing that he hoped to hear. Drink, and I'll water your camels too. A sign from God. And that's how Rebecca came to be known as Isaac's wife. In fact, you may know that Isaac's son, Jacob, met his wife at a well as well. Rebecca and Rachel, beautiful virgins who were engaged to their husbands at a well. And this? This is the woman that Jesus engages at a well? What a contrast to what we saw with Rebecca. This Samaritan woman had basically started off by saying, who do you think you are talking to me? I'm a Samaritan. You're a Jew. We don't have dealings with one another. And I think she seems pretty cynical and skeptical about this so-called living water that Jesus is offering. She treats him as if maybe he's a bit of a car salesman at first. And maybe at first she's um, she thinks he's maybe speaking about getting down deep into the well to the water that's moving. This was, after all, a well that was fed by a spring. No one wants the stagnant water lying on top. You want to get down to the bubbling spring water. He says he's got some of this water for her. But she responds to him like he's a bit crazy. Where do you get this so-called living water? You got nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. I think this woman is a little sassy. Maybe she's even mocking him a bit. 
What are you doing asking me for a drink? Consider the contrast there with how Rebecca responded to Abraham's servant. Drink, and I'll water your camels too. What a lovely woman Rebecca was, inside and out. This is not a lovely woman. Why do you ask me for a drink? She's a little edgy. She's a little rude. But this is the kind of woman that Jesus is pursuing, is seeking. It's the kind of woman that he wants to be his bride, even. You see, Jesus has not come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. Jesus is willing to come and be the groom to a filthy bride. But he will make her clean. He will dress her in the robes of his righteousness. He will wash her with the waters of baptism. By the way, if you think that this image of a groom seeking out a bride at a well is a bit of a stretch, consider that in the previous chapters, in chapter 2, we had just been at a wedding, right? And in chapter 3, we read that John the Baptist had declared, I'm not the Christ, the one who has the bride. That's the bridegroom. Jesus is a groom, and he's coming to seek and to save his bride, but his bride is not pretty, and she's not pure. Instead, she's a Samaritan sinner. This is just the type that Jesus came to seek and to save. He's not come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. In fact, looking back again at John 3, I can't help but notice a really significant contrast between this woman and the previous person that Jesus had encountered, Nicodemus. In Nicodemus, Jesus had encountered a man, right, a Jew, an educated person, a ruler of the people, someone who was respected, somebody whose theology was orthodox. In contrast, this woman is anonymous. I mean, we don't even get her name. She's a woman. She's a Samaritan. She's unschooled. She's not influential. She's despised by basically everyone. And her faith is cultic, heterodox. Actually, there's one more difference between these two. Jesus does not seek out Nicodemus, does he? Nicodemus comes to him under the cloak of night. But here Jesus seeks this woman in broad daylight. See, Jesus is not about seeking his own kind, and neither should we be. That's not the work of the church, just to seek its own kind. Instead, just as Jesus, we are to seek strangers, Samaritans, even sinners. But not only does Jesus seek this woman, he also suggests that he can satisfy her. Notice again what Jesus says in verse 10 of this chapter. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you a drink. He would have given you living water. Again, I understand this idea of living water might, might confuse the woman or make her a little skeptical, but Jesus continues with her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Why is Jesus talking about water and, and thirst and springs? Well, I believe it's because he knew that this woman had a thirst. She needed to be filled up. She needed satisfaction. 
She had a need. She wanted to be filled up and satisfied. She's really dying of thirst. You know, wa- water is life. We know that. We know that our bodies are mostly made up of water. But I think the ancients may have known it better than we do. Of course, they may not have known it uh, scientifically the way that we do, but they knew it experientially. I mean, we, we turn on our faucets, right, and fresh water comes out, or we make a trip to the friendliest place in town, Costco, and we pick up a pallet of water, no problem, right? We take fresh water for granted. We just assume it'll be plentiful. But in ancient times, you had to live near water, and a good chunk of your day was taken up going for water. That's because everything needs water. It's absolutely essential to life. Plants need water in an agrarian society like these people lived in. You were dependent upon the rains. There were no modern irrigation techniques. So if the rains didn't come, you either moved or you were going to die. If you didn't die of thirst, you might die of starvation because the crops wouldn't grow, the livestock would die out. Water was essential. Water was equated with life, which is probably why ancient people so often maybe prayed to rain gods. And Jesus, who is now making himself vulnerable to this woman, who is thirsty himself, who says, I need a drink, also says to her, so too, woman, you need a drink from me. But it's a drink that your soul needs, not just your body. And if you drink from me, you'll never be thirsty again. In fact, this water will become a replenishing spring, welling up that will never dry out. Springs are amazing, aren't they? They run under the earth. We, they're mysterious to us. Where does that water come from? It just keeps bubbling up, though. See, Jesus is offering her something that will satisfy the longings and the emptiness that she's had in her soul. The constant craving for more. Again, I know I'm stealing a little bit of Chuck's thunder uh, for next week by mentioning this, but she's had five husbands and now she's with another guy. Here's a woman who knows what it feels like to go back over and over searching for satisfaction. This woman kept looking for fulfillment in men. She had an instinct. She had an impulse, which I think was good. That there was something truly meaningful out there, something that could satisfy, and she was looking for something that could fill the void in her heart. But she never found it. And eventually, when Jesus tells her to go get her husband, he's telling her to face the thing that she's pursuing that cannot deliver fulfillment. She keeps going back to this well, but it's an empty cistern. You know, any one of us can be like this woman in that we do all experience voids in our life. We often try to fill those voids with something other than Jesus. But friends, we were made, we were created to glorify God and to enjoy Him. We don't always glorify God, of course, as we were designed to, and thus we don't enjoy Him. He doesn't fill us up. Our hearts turn to other idols to fill the void. Some of us turn to our occupations, to pouring ourselves into our work, Others turn to diversions, to living for the weekend. Some turn to relationships, even sexual ones. Some of you may have heard of St. Augustine. Um, He was a great Christian thinker for the ancient church, but Augustine was not always a saint. As a young man, he was a partier. He was a, a womanizer. 
He was always looking for something to satisfy him, but he could get no satisfaction. Later in his life, he grew up a little bit. He became more contemplative. Um, he turned to philosophies to fill the void. But those things really didn't satisfy him either. Eventually, Jesus called Augustine. Jesus called him to come and to drink from something that truly satisfies, and it was after his conversion that Augustine wrote a book simply called Confessions, where he confessed the desperate discontent of his earlier life and the graces that led him to salvation. And in those confessions, he writes, You made us for yourself, Lord, but our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You know, to restless hearts, what does Jesus say? He says, come to me, all who are weary, who are tired of running after this and that and the other, and I will give you rest. I will fill you up. I will give you contentment. People go back and again and again, again to the same wells that offer satisfaction, but there's really only one that will satisfy. Come, everyone who thirsts, says the prophet. But receive this as a call from Jesus. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters and drink. Come without money and without price. Why labor for that which will not satisfy? And that's another beautiful aspect of this gospel that we believe. It's free. The water of life that Jesus offers is a gift of God. If you knew the gift of God, and the one who's speaking to you says, Jesus, since you can't buy it, you can't work for it, the only way to receive it is to come to Jesus by faith. It is free. But as Chuck often reminds us, it also was very costly. It's costly to Jesus. He paid for it. You know, I don't want to read too much into this text, but I don't think it's insignificant that Jesus offers this woman satisfaction at his expense. What I mean to say is that he had come to her with the words, give me a drink. And I don't think it's inconsequential that he offers her the gift of eternal life while he himself thirsts. Because one of the very last words that John records for us from the lips of Jesus as he hung on the cross was, I thirst. You see, Jesus knew what it was to thirst. He knew what it was to become empty, to be poured out so that our thirst might be filled up. He who had enjoyed perfect communion with the Father was cut off from him at the cross. At that moment, he knew what it was like to be spiritually dry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My heart longs for you, God, as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. That was the psalmist David, but that's Jesus too. That was Jesus on the cross. He had the living water stripped away from him, and he endured the agony of the cross so that you and I might have streams of living water welling up within us. Waters that promise abundant and eternal life. You know, this is the second time in two chapters that Jesus has offered himself as uh, the source of eternal life. In John 3, he said to Nicodemus, as Moses was lifted up, uh, no, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must also be lifted up. And whoever believes in him will have eternal life, he said. 
So here in John 4, he offers the gift of eternal life as well. This is going to be a continuing theme in John's gospel, one that we're going to hear over and over. It's inescapable. In a couple of chapters, we will read Jesus' testimony that whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life as well. I will raise him up on the last day. I will give him everlasting life. It's only found in Jesus. Jesus is the fountain of youth. Do you believe that? The only people who will believe that are the people who have grappled with who is this Jesus? Is he actually greater than Jacob? You know, there's a, a great trend nowadays to bring Jesus down to make him a great teacher, a great man like many other great men throughout history. But we should never do that with Jesus. You know, C.S. Lewis says that a man who made the claims that Jesus man made would not be a great teacher, would he? He says he has eternal life. He keeps pointing to himself as the source of all salvation. A man like that would either be a lunatic or he'd be a liar. Or he is who he says he is. He's Lord. And if he's Lord, come to him. You know, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. You need it. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant which is established in my blood. It's poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you. Jesus is the fountain of youth. We must rest on him. If you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, I invite you to come. Come, taste, and see that the Lord is good and that he will fully satisfy. 